Businesses in Myanmar say the country's economy is on the brink of collapse. Some have seen losses of more than 70% since the military coup, and they believe things will only get worse. It would be more difficult for international countries to work here if Myanmar is put under sanctions. If that happens, then they will leave Myanmar to maintain their image. Earlier this month, Myanmar made it compulsory for all foreign currency in the country's banks to be automatically converted to the local chat. During this current crisis, we have been working around the clock to increase our podcast and blog production to the highest possible level, knowing that every little bit counts. However, we're still limited in this effort due to budget constraints. All of our work relies on the power of donation. So if you find this content of value, please consider supporting our mission so that we can continue our efforts. back. Our guest today uh, should be familiar to pretty much everyone who's been paying attention to the Myanmar context since the coup, uh, Sean Tunnell, uh, a man who should need no introduction, but uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm going to uh, invite you to introduce yourself now for the two people in the audience who uh, don't actually know uh, who you are. Sean? Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, my name is Sean Turnell. Um, I've been uh, back in Australia now for about 11 months, but of course, prior to those 11 months, I was a prisoner in Myanmar for 650 days uh, after being sentenced for three years, essentially for espionage, although technically I was charged and convicted with breaching Myanmar's Official Secrets Act. Uh, but prior to that, I'd been economic advisor to the uh, civilian government in Myanmar from 2016 to 2021. Uh, happened to be in Yangon uh, at the time of the coup. Was arrested by the military five days after the coup. Uh, kept for a while at a police station for about two months. Locked inside a box. Moved into Insane. Then up to Napidor, where I was on trial for a year with Dorsu and many of the other ministers. Uh, convicted, as I mentioned, and then finally released in November 2022 and came back to Australia. But 
yeah, long time worker on Myanmar, particularly on aspects of the economy, uh, both historically and present day, and as an economist. And uh, since coming back, certainly remain really interested in Myanmar's economic situation and um, hoping to you know contribute as much as I can for as long as I can. Excellent. Uh, it's quite a quite a robust introduction. And now. Our, our discussion today is mostly going to focus on the economic, which uh, which is your wheelhouse. And so, right off the bat, the the fact that you were detained essentially under espionage charges when your your function was an economic advisor, and not you're not even in the government. You're not a Myanmar citizen. Uh, you're just an advisor to the people in the government, and yet apparently you had a massive target on your back from from the military. So just just sort of try to contextualize this for us. Why would someone who is an economic advisor be such a sort of uh, a, a, an enemy of the military? Yeah, two things, I think, to that, mate. Um, number one is sort of an instrumental aspect to it, which was I was useful to get at Dorsu and the others. So if they could somehow make out that Dorsu and the other ministers of the NLD government were acting under my direction or collaboration with me, sharing national secrets, things like that, I think they hoped to damage them and and hoped and did, of course, then pin charges on them in that way. So I think the first thing is just instrumental uh, as a way of getting to Dorsu and the ministers. So that's number one. I think the second thing, though, is probably a little bit more important in a sense um, because the economic reforms that were being undertaken by the NLD government really were beginning to run up against the military uh, and the connected entities all around them. Um, so the whole direction of the reforms was something that the military didn't like and increasingly didn't like. Um, and I think had the second term occurred, that that would have been even more apparent. So uh, so I think there was a sort of genuine anger there as well from the military that, that they really were starting to come under pressure uh, from the sort of reforms that, that we were doing. And, and I was sort of like a little bit of a bogeyman, I think, for them in that regard. So... Yeah, so a mixture of those things, instrumental on the one hand, but then a certain animus and a face to put on that animus with respect to the economic reforms themselves. And so th- th- this is a really interesting one because the military, as as we know, as we understand, had phenomenal independence under the the sort of pseudo-democratic uh, governments that we saw, whether it was the, the government of Thane Sein, whether it was the NLD government. But we often don't, think of the the economy in that way i think those of us who are outside you know growing up in western countries we think of the economy as something that governments you know try to manipulate when they can they try to improve them when they can but ultimately are beasts completely unfettered and independent and and beyond the control of of uh, individual institutions and organizations now to what extent did the myanmar military have control over the myanmar economy to a great extent, but increasingly less so, and I think that was the issue. Um, so we often use expressions like transition economy for all sorts of you know economies around the world, and it was a label to become popular after the fall of communism, etc. Uh, but Myanmar sits right firmly in that camp, where it was genuinely transitioning from 
what in the 1960s was an extreme command economy in which the state and the military is really what we're talking about whenever we use the expression the state in Myanmar, where the military was in complete control to something else. Um, and so by the time we get to the mid-teens of the 21st century, Myanmar's economy was a, was a mix of things. It still had a large portion completely under state control. And then variations of that leading out to, you know, the informal economy, which is about the only bit that was beyond state control. So it, it was moving along that continuum, but towards the more economic free end of things. And so it wasn't just the state itself that was beginning to retreat. Uh, and, you know, a lot of activities that are traditionally done in socialist countries beginning to move towards the private sector. But even some of the crony conglomerates and some of the military corporations were beginning to find their market share across different areas erode. Now, I, I don't want to sound too sanguine on that because I'm not saying at all that they didn't have very great control, which they did. And in fact, that's partly what we're talking about, of course, is that ultimately the power thus bestowed bounce back and I think was significant in the coup itself. Um, but they were coming under pressure. So, yeah, so I think it's always important to think of Myanmar genuinely transitioning from something, and that something was complete control. And, and that, I think, is what the military started to glimpse, a possible future in which, which their control was eroding. Because you, you mentioned this transitioning, and I think... It, it can be a little bit confusing to follow because there seem to have been multiple transitions in the Myanmar economy. I think um, the, the the creation of this socialist state. I mean, if, if we can take it that far back, um, was there was there a period in Myanmar where they tried to do what we saw in a lot of other socialist states like China and the USSR, where you just simply did not have private enterprise as such? Was that ever a, an objective of the regime? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah. So in the early years of the Burma Road to Socialism, uh, that's exactly what they had in mind. Uh, and, and we saw a, a nationalisation of economic activity that went just about further in Myanmar than any other country, apart from, again, the other really extreme examples like North Korea and so on. So, yeah, it, it really reached um, large scale and, um, and yeah, almost complete. Uh, by the time we get to the late 1960s. Then in the early 70s, it starts to move off a bit. And then we get uh, some big changes then happening towards the end of the 80s, into the 90s, uh, the Than Sein government and so on. So the, the, the direction really from the late 1980s is a gradual re retreat of formal state control. Uh, but again, really important to acknowledge that that. Um, less than formal state actors begun to fill uh, some of the gap as well, whether it be crony, uh, crony conglomerates or military-owned corporations. But, yeah, but at one point it really was the uh, the, the full Stalinist state control model. And it's, it's interesting because the, the stories that we hear from the 70s, the 80s, the early 90s are, are ones in which the military themselves, not, not the high-level generals, but the officers who received certain goods like actual goods as part of their compensation selling those goods on street corners to make ends meet and people who don't have access to those types of commodities uh, or at least not sort of reliable access to those commodities whether it's you know petrol whether it's rum um engaging in a black market economy so was, was there a a sense of the military 
establishment trying to create a completely regulated and controlled economy, while simultaneously the military themselves being the main drivers of the illicit unofficial economies on the side. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've put your finger on it, actually, which was the, the military at one level, again, back to that earlier period in the 1960s, sought uh, almost complete state control. Uh, that model didn't work. And so we moved, moved to something else and essentially to shore up its own power and to... Uh, I guess, make sure that people went along with their, their control of the economy. We see M- Myanmar's economy moving almost completely to a rent-seeking one. So the military's role is to really grab the commanding heights of the economy, but then, as you've mentioned, all the way down through the system as well, and that distribution of rents or uh, distribution of economic benefits that come not through economic activity but just simply power over resources, that becomes the essential feature of Myanmar's economy, I'd say over the last 50 years, of just grabbing control of the country's resources, distributing those resources to favoured entities in larger amounts at the top of the pyramid, the crony firms and all that, but then all the way down to the bottom. So it's about grabbing control of the state. Whoever controls the state controls the economy. But yeah, so it sort of changes a little bit through time, but that essential essence of Myanmar really being a rent-seeking economy rather than the sort of economy that was fast developing around the rest of the South, of Southeast Asia, becoming the tigers, becoming productive economies. Myanmar's was never really about that. It was all about just grabbing control, whatever there was, and distributing that in order to maintain power. Basically. So, uh, I mean, I'm not an economist, so forgive me if I'm, if I'm incorrect in my characterization, but when you talk about rent-seeking as a... As as a as a economic idea or ethos, it sounds very much to me as as a layman what I would simply describe as scamming off the top. So not actually contributing new goods, new commodities to the economy, but rather taking things that already exist, taking control of those things, and trying to artificially inflate the prices and the values of those things so that you can line your own pockets, while again not actually contributing to the overall production of the economy as a whole. Is that is that an accurate description of what's going on? I think it's magnificently accurate. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yep. So that can an economy in, in such a structure succeed? Can it grow? Is there any long-term plan for that? No, no, it essentially can't grow. Um, it's only going to grow through population growth and then whatever can be brought in around the edges from outside. And and again, that's really the essence of the story of Myanmar's economy over the last few decades. You know, we've seen the other countries uh, become leaders in export industries and so on, and with a very uh, firm idea about where they want to go and, and, um, and what to do to get there. In Myanmar's, yes, there's been improvements around the edges of, you know, technologies have been brought in and so on. And so we've seen some economic growth and, again, some population growth that's going to inflate the economy anyway. But other than that, we've not seen anything like the transformational change that we saw in other parts of Asia. And the reason for that, again, really comes down to the political. Um, Essentially, what it was about, as you've described, is just grabbing hold of that pie uh, and carving that pie up. It was never about how can we make a bigger pie? That, that, That was never really the central question of economic decision makers in Myanmar for much of the last half century. And so uh, 
I, I couldn't forgive myself if I had an economist on and I and I didn't um I didn't go there. So if if we can spend a moment talking about the, um 1985 and 1987 when uh, General Nguyen basically unilaterally uh, abolished most of the high value currency notes in the economy and thereby erased uh, most common people's life savings. Can you can you speak at all to what was going on in the minds of the leadership when they made that phenomenally phenomenally disastrous decision, and what the actual economic impacts of that were? Yeah. So again, that really comes out from a fear of loss of control. So the, the specifics there were essentially that a lot of black market activity was being taken taken place in cash. In fact, particularly then, it was exclusively cash. Um, and it was seen as a way of hitting back at that part of the economy, part of the economy completely out of the control of the state. So again, you know, at that period, the, the failure of the full socialist model was in full bloom uh, and there was this burgeoning informal economy which the state had very little impact over. But the one thing that they did have control over, of course, was the basic currency unit within which most of that activity took place. So the idea was if you demonetized the most important currency notes in that system, it was a way of bringing down that formal economy and, in a sense, reasserting state control. So that that's essentially what it, what it was, but, of course, it was very strange on top of that. So as we know, you know, part of that story was the replacement of a decimal currency system into one based on the number nine and all the rest of it. So it's sort of infamous amongst demonetization episodes around the world because of its bizarre uh, numerical aspects. But um, in, in many other ways, it's sort of um, uh, a very typical thing, actually done by totalitarian regimes in particular, uh, as a way of sort of pushing back against elements that are starting to get out of beyond the control of the state. Fascinating. And so, I mean, just what 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 actually happened then? Because people people lost life savings. Like the, the initial wave that was done in 1985 eliminated, if I remember correctly, the 50 and the 100. And that's what most people were keeping their savings in. Those were the, the highest value currencies. Did the people themselves try to find alternatives? Did they try to, to find ways of I don't know, move to a different currency? Did they did they lose faith in the banks or did they start relying more on the military infrastructure? Did it, did it succeed in a sense in shutting down the black markets? What was the reaction? Uh, yeah, no. So the first thing is that it didn't work at all. And so people just moved into other assets, uh, assets absolutely beyond state control. So into gold and physical commodities and into foreign currencies to the extent that they could. Uh, also, though, the damage on the economy was so severe that some of the people, of course, never recovered uh, the resources that they had before the demonetization episode. So in other words, it wasn't that they replaced that money with anything. They, they just didn't have anything. Uh, and then the economy entered a period of uh, a great shock to productivity. So it, so it wasn't like, you know, that there was lots of wealth looking for a new way of storing that wealth. A lot of that wealth just simply disappeared. Um, but you used an expression a moment ago, which is really important to highlight whenever we talk about money, which is the word faith. That's the critical word, because the most important thing that that demonetization episode did, and then it's been backed up again and again and again in Myanmar, is a loss of faith in the monetary unit. 
And when we think about the monetary unit or money, we're talking about the most important institution there is in, in a country because we work for money, we save in money, we survive through money. It's the, it's the, you know, it's the blood uh, of, of the system. But if you bring doubt into that, then suddenly people no longer work for money, save for money, use the national monetary unit to buy, sell, invest and all that sort of thing. Instead, economic activity gets diverted uh, into just defensive ways of keeping the state at bay. Uh, again, you know, nothing can be trusted. You, you, uh, investment takes a huge hit uh, and you just start doing all the, all the things you need to do to protect yourself rather than those longer punts in the future. That is that that requires a stable currency unit, you know. So when we think uh, in the twenty first century about the uh, innovations of the the big tech firms and and uh, internet entrepreneurs and all that around the world, notice that all of that is found uh, is founded upon some sort of faith in the monetary unit. Uh, if you're going to put money out there with an expectation of return, but then find out that that return is itself in doubt because the most fundamental institution, money itself is in doubt, then economic activity just begins to freeze up. Uh, and yet yeah, the entire economic system really becomes perverted. And so that, that episode, I think, just lay the floor and the, then the groundwork to what would be subsequent decades of, of similar sorts of moves, of which I would say the coup and some of the things that have happened since are, are more examples of it. Mm. So, so then moving forward after that, it, absolute debacle. Um, something that we're going to come back to because it 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 seems to have many many elements of that are, are repeating themselves today. Uh, and definitely, the loss of faith in the chat is is uh, something that's been going on since uh, the the restrictive currency measures they took in two thousand twenty one. But so moving forward, the military then knows ahead of time that they want to have the veneer of democracy. They want to open up. Uh, the country, at least, at least in a PR sense, and so they privatize. Uh, they 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 privatize a lot of the the industries of the nation into MEC and MEHL, uh, which they somehow still control. Can, can you explain what is going on? Because we hear MEC MEHL again and again and again and again. They keep popping up in everything. What are they really? Well, I, I would say that they're uh, more socially acceptable or internationally acceptable, if you like, means of doing the same thing as, as before, which is just divvying up the rents. Uh, but you do it in different ways that make it seem perhaps almost on the surface of a bit of reform even, but again, just superficially rather than in actual fact. Um, but, but you're right in that I, I think what the military was trying to do, of which the creation of MEC and MEH or, or their transformation into what they become, uh, is an example of which is, again, some sort of superficial demonstration that, uh, that the military understand that the, the economy was important. Uh, they needed to pull back in that really obvious Stalinist sort of sense, come up with something else, but not do anything too much uh, to endanger those flow of rents. And so I think we see MEC and MEH just come out of that, this, this desire to um, present uh, a country perhaps under reform and, and possibly some of the, well, not possibly, I think probably some of the military officers did genuinely have an idea about reforming the economy anyway, not 
not perhaps for good reasons, um, but just simply because they wanted the above to become a more productive place and become wealthier and they would advantage from that as well themselves, of course, and Myanmar would be a more powerful voice in the world uh, if, if it wasn't as poor as it was. So I think there was also a bit of recognition of, that some in the military thought that, okay, we've got to change things. The old uh, complete state control model doesn't work. Let's try out some other things. Let's have a look at what's going on in the rest of Asia. And they would have seen some countries beginning to make economic progress, even in the absence of political progress. So I think there was a little bit of, of trying to copy that sort of model. But yeah, I, I would see MEC and MEH coming out of that as, as an example of uh, the appearance of giving up state control, while not in any way um, giving, giving up the distribution of rents. And so on, on a more strict technical level, who actually owns MEC and MEHL? Is it is it a series of individual military commanders? Is it their friends, or is it the military as an entity that owns it? Well, the first thing we'd have to say with both of those is that they're an utter black box. Um, they remain certainly a, a black box uh, to to someone like myself during the period of NLD government, but likewise to many others in the government as well. Now, in saying that, I don't want to suggest that. You know, there could have been some people who would have made some big inroads in understanding those two institutions. But if there were, I didn't know any. Um, it, yeah, that they are units that uh, remained under the control of the military. Uh, little tidbits of knowledge would come here and there, but um, you know, their, their ownership, even their ownership, is is quite um, extremely. Uh, mysterious, you know, that, that they were originally set up to provide funds for the sort of quartermaster associations and, and were meant to benefit the fairly regular uh, ranks of the of the military. Uh, but I don't think there's any question that those entities are controlled by much higher elements. They, they're not in any way mutual associations or anything as innocuous as that. Um, so they remain very much in control of, of powerful figures within the military and and the broader military state. But but the exact, um, I think, configuration of, of the power structure within them um, certainly is, is something that I never knew, um, even though, again, you know, you, you certainly get the impression that, that powerful interests in the military controlled them. And and I, I guess the why I'm sounding uh, doubtful about about the exact structure of them, I think there was, it was very interesting, for instance, the question of, uh, you know, to what extent were these owned by current leaders of the military as opposed to past ones and so on. So there, there, there was a lot of grey around mm. things like that. So we don't actually know. We, we just have a sense that these two massive entities that basically just own most of the businesses in the country are definitely in some way controlled by and funding the military, but we don't fully understand the mechanisms of that. I, I think in the case of those two institutions, that, that's right. There, there, there was some wonderful work being done on all of this around in the early 2000s um, by some yeah, great Myanmar researchers and so on. But it, it sort of um, came to an end when when uh, uh, various publishers and so on got, got cold feet. Um, but, you know, so there had been some inroads, inroads in it. But um, the, the, the secrecy of these institutions, of course, is for a reason. You know, so so cracking them open is is never going to be easy. Um, 
but also just getting confirmation of information from the both is likewise extraordinarily difficult. I can imagine. And do we have an estimate for like how much of the economy is actually in their hands? No, not really, um, except a sizable chunk. Um, little rule of thumbs like, you know, up to about 20% was something that I used to carry in my head. But, but you know, w- whether that was true or not, just really, really difficult mm. to quantify. So much of, you know, even apart from MEC and MEH, so much of what the military does in the economy is is under their own, well, within that black box that I mentioned. So, yeah, and any sort of precision on numbers, I think, is is um, a bit of a fool's errand in some ways. Good to know. Uh, but nevertheless, so we, we, we're in this situation now where the military, in whatever way, but apparently lawfully, put that in inverted commas, owns a huge slice of the economic pie, and they've got this notional democratization. They've, they've started to see increased acceptance internationally. The country is opening up, and... Under the Tainsane era and under the NLD era, it seems that there was actually genuine investment into the country and there seems that there was genuine economic growth and development of that uh, economy. Can you sort of try to quantify uh, how much the economy was changing and developing during that period? Yeah, so I, I, I think quite substantially, uh, and again, this this gets back to that original point that I mentioned, that that so much so that I think the military started to fear that its control was being rapidly eroded. Um, but yeah, it sort of began um, uh, by something that I hinted at earlier, that there were elements within the military regime that understood that Myanmar was slipping further and further behind other countries. And th- this would become a longer term problem. And, and that spectre of Myanmar just disappearing uh, into becoming a province of China, I think, was becoming a very real threat. So we see, as the 2000s go on, a bit of an understanding that change needed to happen, uh, and particular a hope, I think, of many in the military that maybe they could open the economy without opening the politics too much, that they could enjoy faster economic growth, have a bit of a transformation of the economy, increase wealth all around, get their cut and so on, and move, move Myanmar to, to a better place. And that, that, I think, is sort of the vision of the Than Sein government, is, is my reading of it, that, that what, what they were looking at were the sort of authoritarian models uh, in much of the rest of Southeast, Southeast Asia. So, yeah, it was never, in my view, about democracy or anything like that, but it was about, I think, opening up enough freedom on the economic side to rapidly improve growth, but always with a view of benefiting themselves. And so, uh, you know, so they opened a lot to foreign investors and all that, but that was always very tightly controlled. And so in exchange for entry would come all sorts of partnerships, sometimes with MEC and MEH, by the way, but sometimes uh, otherwise as well. Sometimes just, you know, favourable decisions given to particular cronies in exchange for kickbacks along the way. But but nonetheless, uh, delivering growth, but, yeah, alongside that, a lot of benefits to the military as well. And so that, again, as I say, is, is to me the sort of uh, thing we saw through the Than Sein government. Um, changed it a little bit along the way. I think uh, as time went on, there were parts that the, some of the economic ministers of that time um, had, were probably going further than the military really wanted. And I think we saw that in lots of tensions um, 
within the USDP and, and other groups around that time. Uh, then the NLD come in, and to my my way of thinking and, and to my experience, I think the vision was very different. Uh, it was still about moving along, uh, opening Myanmar's economy, uh, etc., to drive growth and to actually allow Myanmar to catch up uh, to some of its peers and neighbours in Asia. But to me, there was always a very, very strong political economy aspect to it as well, which is that you could make political change to get economic change, but also economic change could actually lead to political change. Um, And I think probably the most powerful statement of this was the most important economic document of the NLD government, which was the so-called Myanmar Sustainable Development Plan, or MSDP. And if you have a look at that, there's a very powerful declaration of the interactions between economics and democracy uh, in both direction, that um, uh, good economics was good for growth and all that, but it was also about opening the economy up, it was about dispersing economic power, uh, and by dispersing economic power that there would be a dividend politically to that. You would actually begin to dilute some of those really powerful uh, uh, instruments that that had controlled Myanmar's economy for such a long time that it included the military, but it included a lot of the powerful groups connected to them as well. Uh, And and that you'll get a virtuous circle was was the hope, that that you would get economic change leading to more uh, change of the fundamental political economy, which would then beget further economic change, further political change, etc. And that's the trajectory... Uh, that certainly the people I worked with, that was their firm belief. And, and I think it's very nicely uh, set out in that MSDP. So, um, yeah, so a little bit of continuity, I think narrowly just in terms of economic or greater economic liberalisation under the Thang Sein government then into the NLD. But uh, the NLD, my view would be that that narrow economic part of their objectives was greatly accelerated, but it also had that political economy dimension as mm. well. Now, so one thing that you've mentioned quite a few times is is the cronies. And again, we, we have a general understanding of what cronies are, but they seem to have a very particular role to play within the, the economic and political spheres in Myanmar. How, how would you categorize and define a, a, a crony? What makes a businessman a crony? Well, a crony you would really define as someone who makes money by proximity to power. So in other words, a lot of their wealth comes from that expression that we've used again and again, that is simple rent seeking. So uh, it might be uh, an entity that gets a monopoly license, say, to import motorcycles or be the exclusive exporter of um, cane sugar or or um, yeah, have some sort of special import rights over, over fuel or motor vehicles or buses or tractors or whatever it is. So in other words, you, you, you get some sort of exclusive right given by the state and then invariably there'd be some kickbacks along the way. So the relationship between the crony and the government is utterly symbiotic. Uh, but the, the largest part of the wealth, it's important to note, again, is not really coming from innovation or entrepreneurial activity or putting your money at risk. It's usually about just carving out some sort of space. So I think in Myanmar's case, um, that's primarily what we're talking about, but that's not to deny that there was a little bit of entrepreneurial activity as well. 
usually funded by the rent-seeking activities. So if we look at some of the major conglomerates, what you usually find is that there's some initial way in which they earn their money, say, you know, teak extraction and exports, something like that. Uh, but then that money is then funneled back into some sort of a- other activity, property development, construction, an airline. And then once you've got all that up and running, you usually want to open a bank as well to be able to distribute some of this largesse and curry further favour with, with powerful interests, both in the government and amongst your, your fellow cronies. Um, so you sort of get it galloping ahead from there. But, you know, I think the important thing about the cronies, and, and we can see it almost crony by crony, you'll find some sort of monopoly, semi-legal activity that kicks the process off, that's protected by the state, uh, and then a sort of broadening out. But, but very often at its heart remains a sort of protected economic activity. Um, and, and it's also why, you know, I mentioned that I think the military felt under threat as the reforms were going on under the NLD government. But I think many of the cronies were as well, because I think a lot of their businesses were starting to face much stiffer competition. But yeah, so w- whichever way we're talking about, when we think about, I think the political economy in Myanmar that was developed, it, it really is a story of protected entities. So, so would it be fair to say that the fundamental distinction between a crony and a successful businessman is that the cronies would rely more on um, nepotism, corruption, and special legal exemptions and protections to run their businesses, and therefore that the cronies would also be funneling wealth back to uh, the people in positions of power who are protecting them? Yep, I think that's a really accurate description of it. Okay, and so and you're saying that these are these are monopolies that they're that they're running. How how common is is sort of monopolistic activity and other types of um, business structures and business activities that are generally considered to be non competitive or or outright illegal in in Western economies? Yeah, very common. Um, so um, and and so we've mentioned monopoly, uh, but then as you've mentioned as well, I- illegal activities. So in other words, they're the sort of activities that you don't have to worry about some big foreign company coming in and doing, just simply because that company probably from regulators back home would forbid them getting involved in it. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's some sort of activity. It might be. Uh, so when we say monopoly, it might be, say, a regional monopoly. So you might have, you know, uh, an exclusive import license for motorcycles in, say, uh, Kareni State or or in the Delta or uh, in Shan State or whatever. So you can actually have the same activity, uh, but regionalised monopolies. And, and so, yeah, so it needn't even be a, a, a nationwide monopoly. Or, again, it can be an illegal activity which is protected by its very nature because there's a lot of other business entities that, that just can't participate. So, um, yeah, so, so that's the sort of activity that we're talking about which uh, great wealth can be assembled. And so it's, it's so it, it just seems like there's evolved this, this symbiotic relationship between a corrupted corporatist class who are def- who are protected by the leadership and therefore a corrupt leadership who are willing to sell out the nation's economy to their corporate friends and that this this is just a feedback loop and it's it, it just stops anything from from working uh 
because nobody would want to invest in a country like this. And nobody can really get big in a country like this because the protected monopolies are going to ensure that you can't compete with them. So did this just enforce stag like uh, to a large degree? Did this did this slow the progress of the economy even during the Thainsane era? Yep, sure did. Yep, and 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 that's what makes economic reform in countries like Myanmar just so difficult because you confront invested interests all the way. You know, not only within the cronies themselves, not only within the military, but of course within the civil service and so on as well, where you've got all all of this going on too, lots of corruption there, um, huge vested interests just right across the entire political economy. And it, it just makes things um, insanely difficult. Um, and um, so, but, but I guess, you know, the tactic then is, is to try and do it quickly if you can, mm. to disperse power quickly enough that you can actually set up other centres of power. You know, you, you, you start to get countervailing power interests and 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 that that's really the 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 rub of of economic reform is to try and get those benefits of reform out there quickly enough and in significant magnitudes enough that other people then have a vested interest in favor of reform rather than resisting it so um yeah but it just means that it's all incredibly difficult when you've got a structure like Myanmar has now. and so that that i think segues us very very neatly into the meat of it, now that we've understood the context and the history of the economy uh, and the corruption of the economy, what is it that under the NLD government, um, you and your colleagues were were able to actually do? Because the NLD government's power was very hypothetical in a lot of cases. The military time and again showed that they don't actually take seriously the idea of a civilian government getting in the way of their interests. So what what was actually at the disposal of the of the government and the infrastructure of the day to reform the economy? Well, it was just to move on as wide a front as possible and do what you can when you can. Um, Myanmar is one of those places where grand plans just don't work. Um, in fact, actually, there's not many countries that grand plans work anyway. Uh, life is too messy. But, um, but yeah, a, a very broad front to try and reform things as much as you can, when you can, as often as you can, uh, and hope for sort of uh, spin-offs from that uh, to begin to reform other areas. What, what, one of the things about reform, once you start to really get going, is that the di- disruptive process itself can become quite productive. Um, disrupting one part of the economy requires dis- disruption in another and so on. And then you start to be, be, uh, build coalitions and, and other interests in favour of reform, as I mentioned. So, so the hope was that if you could get really things going along, that you would be able to get enough incentives out there to bring other people along with you. And, and you know, the, um, the whole motivation for a great many people across the economy would be to keep those reforms. And, and, and you know, um, I mean, I'll get on to some of the division uh, or some of the, the, the resistance to that in a tick. But just to say, we could see that, you know, there were moments of, of, um, of clarity and optimism where you saw particularly young people um, grabbing ideas that were locally generated or seeing things that were happening overseas and people in Myanmar coming up with things themselves or sometimes coming back from overseas uh, and just running with them, you know. And, and there was, I, I think, you know, from about um, the, the mid-2010 
2010s, around 2015, 2016, etc., a real building momentum of new businesses, new ideas, and invariably young people. Um, so you could see it. The, the promised land was was almost there, if I could if I can say that. But against all of that uh, were all those vested interests that I mentioned, and and the NLT government just hit so many roadblocks. I mean, the most obvious one and ever threatening one was the military. So it's sitting there as a presence all the time and issuing vague threats, which I'm not sure how many people can remember. You know, but Men on Lie and others within the military were constantly sending shells over the, um, you know, over the rigging of the NLD government. But even apart from that, um, the bureaucracy itself, of course, had been built up to serve originally this Stalinist state and then this rent-seeking state that we've been talking about. So the bureaucracy was extraordinarily resilient against change, uh, resistance against change, and resilience, (laughs) resilient, I suppose. Um, And so... One of the biggest barriers was not even just the very obvious resistance of the military, but the passive and sort of just background resistance of the public sector. So it was incredibly difficult to get things done, get things through. Um, I would say that, you know, much of the bureaucracy in the U.R. was sclerotic. Um, And so, you know, it was just hard to get anything through. Um, and, and I think, I mean, we'll probably touch upon this later, I guess, but, you know, if one was to look forward, one of the first things a reformist government should probably do with the lesson of the NLD's experience in mind was the first thing was to, you know, really clear out that, that civil service. Um, but, yeah, so all just extremely difficult um, and it just became a, a process then of trying to attack points for reform on multiple fronts, and again, I, I would draw people's attention if if they because uh, it, it is still exists online that Myanmar Sustainable Development Plan. You'll see from that the just the the wide range of liberalisation measures from every area we could think of. But but it, but it wasn't grand planning. It was literally just about opening things up here, there, and everywhere. Just little explosions of freedom, if you like was meant to sort of uh, kick things off. And and I do think, you know, that there was a great deal of progress on that. And, and again, that's what partly inspired uh, the full-on resistance to it. And so th- this is where it gets into like a weird territory because you said before that the Tainsang government was trying to improve the economy selfishly. They, they wanted to improve their own lot in life, but they recognized that they needed a stronger economy for there to be more economy to scam off the top of. And so yeah. when you have the the scale of investment in Myanmar and you have these Western companies coming into Myanmar and creating new opportunities and and creating employment and and improving the strength of the economy, that presumably would also have benefited the landed established uh, economic heavy hitters who would be best positioned to be able to to exploit these new opportunities, but it would also one presumes have threatened the monopolies they'd spent a, a long time establishing. What was going on with the cronies in this in this time? Were they seeing a net benefit as a result of this expansion of the economy, or were they seeing their fiefdoms worn away? Yeah, so they were seeing both. Which I think is ex- exactly the point you're making there. Um, so, so yes, they they would probably have seen that in the longer term 
they were going to be smaller fish in a bigger pond. So in a sense, the choice for them was that they were enormous fish in a tiny, tiny pond, and they could see the limits of that. So I think there was an idea that the pond needed to grow, but a recognition that they would become relatively smaller fish, but bigger absolute fish, uh, just to continue the metaphor further, um, uh, so that, you know, that they would become wealthier by uh, a wealthier Myanmar. Uh, but at the same time, their absolute control over the particularly, particular industries they were in would begin to weaken. So, um, and, and I think that, that, by the way, is something you see economic reform everywhere. Uh, the point you make is absolutely right. People with money and power will always benefit from, from reform, but the, the key is so will others. Uh, and over time, one would hope that those others, and I, I think we saw evidence of that in Myanmar, as we have everywhere around the world, that over time, those old vested interests begin to uh, be, well, not not so much competed away, but, but a certain countervailing power tends to, uh, tends to erode some of the, um, some of the dom- dominance of those, of those players. So, yeah, that, that's sort of the story, I think. Um, just to reiterate too, though, I think there, there were elements in the Thane Thane government that, that were not completely selfish. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think, again, the state objectives, I think, were quite narrow and, and were absolutely uh, uh, about, incre- you know, th- this dark vision that they were beginning to see of me and my just slipping off all sorts of global indexes power and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I, I think there was some with a, with a bit of a broader vision as well. Interesting. And so then the next corollary, if it is economic expansion, it foreign investment reform that allows these cronies to see their own bank account numbers go up, basically, whether or not they they own the show, they themselves now have more purchasing power than they did previously. Does this wear away at the symbiotic relationship between the cronies and the military that had previously propped up their economic prosperity? Yeah, very much so. Um, And I think we saw that um, without mentioning any names. But I think if we look at, there were certain crony businesses uh, that had develops quite strong ties with international firms with very strong governance requirements. Um, and we, we were beginning, I think, to see a transformation. Um, and we, we saw that in banking, we saw it in airlines, we saw it in hospitality, we saw it in insurance, telcos, all sorts of things like that. I, I think that there was real change uh, taking place. And so that symbiotic relationship, which had been the the critical relationship before was beginning to change. Where, in a sense, um, if you like, the, the the stakeholders for some of those crony businesses became different. You know, the the people they answered to, apart from themselves and their owners and all the rest of it. Uh, but beyond that, it wasn't just the military anymore. It was other entities, and sometimes those entities were offshore and beyond control of the Myanmar military. So, yeah. So I, I think there there was a fundamental change between some of the cronies and the military as well. And I, I think, again, uh, around the time of the coup and post-coup, we, we've seen some of that. Uh, we've also seen the opposite, of course. We've seen some of the cronies who, in a sense, were beyond the pale, beyond investable by international investors. And I think some of those, they, they stayed much closer to the military, both through the NLD period and after. I mean, so that makes sense. So there's a sort of bifurcation of the crony population 
into those who see a future for themselves and their interests in the new system, and those who know that their only hope to maintain their power is to drag the country back into the old system. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's right. And I think post-coup as well, we've seen some of the ones that had made progress uh, and had moved further away from the military in what are just acts of desperate survival, uh, just heave back to the military again. Um, what, what, one of the things, because I, I don't want to sound too um, naive about business, by the way, here, in, in that, that there's a wonderful line that, that basically just says, capital is always cowardly, right? So money always flees. It always flees trouble. Um, so, uh, so we've certainly seen that uh, after the coup, that, that enterprises that had seemed to be the sort of enterprises that Myanmar might need in the future. When push came to shove and the military came back, uh, a lot of them, you know, really showed the colours of capital so often through history and just went back to where power lay. Mm. That makes sense. And so on top of this, you, you've mentioned a couple of times the, the, the civil service. Uh, so my understanding is that many of the high-ranking positions within the civil service sector actually were held by military officers, former military officers, the family and friends of military officers. Uh, and of course, as we know, under the 2008 constitution, uh, I think four of the, uh, the ministry portfolios outright had to be controlled by military appointed government ministers. So to what extent were, were the people working in the civil service personally beneficiaries of this, um, this corrupted uh, relationship between the military and the cronies? And how difficult was it to get the civil service to get rid of these people who are trying to hold the country back from development um, without suffering too much institutional knowledge loss? Yeah, a great question, um, which I'll, I'll break up into about three parts, if I can. By all means. Um, two, <laughs> two, two, two to start with. Um, and so what, one is to say that many in the, in the civil service were exactly as you've described, uh, super connected to the rent flows coming from the military. And you mentioned, you know, senior military people being put in very powerful positions within the civil service. So that, that they were very obvious uh, points of resistance to change, uh, and overtly so, and and crudely so. Uh, so that that that's one group. A second group, though, would really just come from the mindset of the civil service, because again, you know, this civil service grew up; it was established through very strong state socialist sort of control. Begins to loosen up, but it's still very much a rent-seeking economy. It really is. You know, wealth comes out of your access to the state. And so the mindset, if you like, of the civil service is likewise, I think, quite a powerful, um, quite a powerful cultural thing in um, uh, governing how people behave. And so breaking out of that, like, so in other words, moving from um, a presumption that everything is forbidden unless the state allows it to the reverse, that everyone should be basically be free to do things, in the economic sphere particularly, unless for some reason, you know, it should not be permitted. That, that mindset change was uh, absolutely crucial and very much a work in progress. And, and when I say a work in progress, you know, really only the first tiptoe, 
into that. So, yeah, so the, so within the public service itself, I think you've got those two elements, very overt corruption and overt connection of very powerful people to military and other interests. But then this broad, I would say, cultural problem within the civil service, and, and by culture, I mean the work, work culture, fashioned by incentives down the years, um, of just knowing how to get ahead within the, the civil service. But yeah, but again, you know, based on a fundamental idea as well, is that um, it, it's it's up to the state to give permission to do things. And without that permission, something was forbidden. And so trying to overturn that, trying to make the presumption that that people were free to do things unless there was some good health or, you know, whatever other reason for them not to do it, um, that that was a real battle, and um, and I think partly generational as well, because uh, I think an elephant in the room in this aspect, in talking about cultural change within the civil service and so on, is also just looking at the age structure uh, and some of the dynamics of the way in which you know so much of the civil service was dominated by, and if I speak it frankly, old men. Um, old men who had grown up under a different system and were just highly resistant to change, whether or not, you know, they were in the pay of a particular crony or connected to the military or, or not. Um, they had a nice little comfortable niche in this uh, in these jobs um, and just didn't want to change. And and so one of the things I observed and, and I admired them incredibly was the young people who'd come into the civil service and come into sort of policy-making roles, I admired them for their ambition, for their vision, for their courage and all that, but I sort of lamented with them the frustration that they had uh, of trying to bring about change. And, and they made victories here and there, uh, but it was just so hard. And, and I'd particularly like to call out actually women, young women in this process, because um, Myanmar has one unusual big picture cultural um, aspect when it comes to economic ministries, and that is they tend to be dominated by women at the working level. Uh, at the top, it's these old men who tend to uh, run the places and make the decisions. But if you look at who does the work, it's mostly women. And who was doing the work and driving the change? It was mostly young women. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was lost in admiration within weeks of getting to Myanmar uh, and taking up my role in 2016, and that admiration uh, lasted all the way to the end and beyond. Um, and you know, it's just so tragic to, to think that that these young women are, are often, you know, have had to flee or or whatever or worse, etc. Uh, now, um, so so there's that aspect then, just about the civil service. The other point, the third point, I wanted to make that your question prompted, if I can, is just to say, um, or was just to highlight the point you made that very powerful ministries were beyond control of the civilian government. Um, and I think this is absolutely critical. It's critical in so many ways politically, uh, but it's critical economically as well because um, when you think about it, what a remarkable thing that here you've got a government trying to reform, trying to, say, fix up the fiscal situation and all that, but that the biggest area of government spending, the far away most important fiscal unit, home affairs, military, are totally beyond the civilian government to influence. And in the case of the military, its budget could not even be questioned by the parliament and by the civilian government, let alone determined by that government. 
So the biggest area of government spending was beyond the control of the government. And so that meant that if you're talking about fiscal reform, the biggest single item of your influence is off the table from the word go. And so you've got to come at things from different angles. And I think that's a very important hurdle that existed all the way through the the NLD government and, and unresolved, of course, right to the end because the military never did give that up. And of course, um, you know, the coup is, is just a, a further um, assertion of their control in that and so many other ways. And so, first of all, I just want to, to echo what you were saying about, uh, in particular, the, the young Myanmar women. Um, I, I, I was having a, a discussion with one of our other guests, who I won't name because we were speaking off the record. And I found it very interesting because we... I, I expressed a position that was very critical of a lot of the entrenched uh, labor and entrenched mindsets within uh, Myanmar industries and, and specifically in Myanmar uh, government sectors. And, and and he was pushing back. But eventually, we got to a point where, where he would basically say, okay, if we really wanted to improve these organizations, probably we would start by getting rid of everyone who's over the age of 45 and of the people remaining get rid of 75% of the males and 25% of the females, because on the whole, young women are the people that you want in these industries. They're the ones that you want in these government sectors, because they are the ones who are going to work the hardest. And they are the ones who are the most open to new things and new experiences and change, and are going to help implement things that are beneficial, uh, even if they go against, you know, the way everything has been done up until up until now. So you're, you're certainly not the first person um, that that we've had on the channel who's who's expressed this this admiration for for the incredible capacity of of Myanmar women particularly young Myanmar women uh and and lamented that they are very often just overlooked and ignored and and very often have had to flee the country which is a very sad situation to be in but yeah it's um yeah I, I don't want to be too down on the men in the you know there were some really great guys as well but but yeah the broader point um it's a generalization that works and just another little anecdote on that um whenever i would go into a meeting you'd always see the men at the top table um and then you would see the women always in the seats at the back like lining mm. the walls uh, sitting there with their pens poised and and but if you ever wanted to know anything it was to the women that you went all the time, um, and and this was just yeah a, a pattern right across the the whole time I was there. So yeah, just another anecdote, I guess, in that in that same direction. But at the same time, just a little bit of a shout out to my uh, many uh, Myanmar male friends, many of whom were great as well. But as a general rule, I think we could say that the the women were just superlative. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so moving to to the comments you made with the military uh, budget. There's an interesting factoid that I came across a while ago. I just want to run past you. Uh, right after the coup happened, um, some you know a friend of mine and I we were we were doing some back of the envelope calculations on how much money the military is going through and trying to figure out well how long can the military sustain um, uh, the CDM basically and and the economic shutdown that comes with people um, refusing to go to work and refusing to raise revenue or the rents that the military requires. And one thing that I came across w when I was trying to find the military budget was that apparently not only does the military get its budget during the actual 
annual budget announcement. It, it gets that allotment. But there's a, a tradition where the military can basically come back six months later and will put in a request for an extension of budget, which is just rubber stamped through the government pro forma. And so you might have a budget of, you know, whatever the case may be, um, and then you might have, you know, 25, 50% increase on that budget six months down the line. Is that uh, also your experience? Absolutely. Yep. Um, and, and there's even something beyond that, which is off-the-book financing for the military. So, so the, the, the issue that you referred to is still on book. You know, it's still vaguely observable. There was some, some sort of process. But one important fact we always have to remember is that the military has control of the printing presses for the money. So push comes to shove. And, and this is where it's interesting with Myanmar. Sometimes the economic questions are incredibly basic. You know, in, in countries like the United States, et cetera, you've got the Federal Reserve, you've got, uh, we're witnessing at the moment, you know, the US government might be shut down because of spending bills stuck in the Congress and all the rest of it. Um, none of that in Myanmar. In the end, push comes to shove, the military print the money. Um, now, massive damage comes from that. You get monetary instability, which is one of the features of Myanmar down the last few decades, all come from that that feature. But they can do it. So, so when, when it comes down to their resources, as long as the domestic currency has some sort of claim over real resources, it can be used to, to get stuff for them, basically, putting, again, putting it really bluntly and crudely. As long as it has some value, that access to the printies uh, is really the foundation to uh, the military's financing operations. Um, and so, yeah, and the control of the printing works has been absolute uh, throughout. Um, all, all sorts of, you know, skullduggery happens when it comes to money printing in Myanmar down the years. So, yeah, so, so just to say that, you know, in a very visceral, physical way, uh, the military has access to finance that is just, you know, completely uh, obscure to anyone uh, and, um, yeah, solely available to them and, and outside any sort of scrutiny, any sort of control of any outside so party. I, I just need to clarify, because what you've just said is a level of insanity that I even even I did not expect to be the case. Are you telling me that the military actually has seigneurage, the actual literal right to create new banknotes without having to get approval from civilian government? Most certainly. That's, yep. do, do they have to report it at least? No, so, no, there, there's nothing, nothing that they have to do. Now, sometimes it, it will be reported, uh, but at other times, it, not at all. Um, there are many, many instances over the last few decades of multiple printings of a currency run. So, for instance, you, you might get authorization like here at the official level, you, you might get authorization through the central bank to print, say, 1 billion uh, 10,000 jet notes, just, just off the top of my head, um, and they'll be allocated a certain serial run. Well, you could do a duplicate of that printing. So you could even keep the numbers consistent with what the original authorization might be, 
But in the end, there's still a physical story here. There's the physical production of notes. So regardless what's been authorised and entered into the books, even literally in, in the most basic level in terms of the serial numbers on the notes, you could do a duplicate printing of those same notes and use those notes in circulation. And in a country like Myanmar, you're going to get away with it because, again, the military is the ultimate authority and it answers only to itself and, and to no one else. So, um, and it's why, of course, we, we have this other very bizarre phenomenon in Myanmar where the true limit then, according to the finance of the military, is twofold. Number one, the complete collapse of confidence in the JAT, but of course, even well short of its complete collapse, declining confidence, declining confidence in the JAT undermines military spending. So even as they print like crazy, they're simultaneously reducing the value of the JAT as, as they're doing that. That's one aspect. But the other one, again, even more basic and, and just extraordinary uh, limit to <laughs> military financing is that they start to wear out the printing presses. Like literally the, the plates uh, that are used to, um, to print the image on those banknotes wear out. Um, and there's been many times in Myanmar where, where uh, the, the printing process itself, the physical printing process has become the problem and parts can't be accessed from Germany where originally the note, note printing machinery was all imported from. Sometimes the paper runs out and they can't get access to the paper. Uh, and there's been a number of the times where emergency shipments of paper have come into the country, etc. Yeah, so at, at the most, again, most basic level, um, you know, if we're going to say what, what is the ultimate limit to the financing of the military, and, and we get down to, you know, these basic items of, of printing plates and, and paper. That this is, this is so far beyond the notes that I had. You, you have actually stunned me. I had no idea that a situation this fundamentally, I mean, I, I don't even have the vocabulary for this. Um, because this, this is not, you know, vulnerable. This is not precarious. This, this, is, this is begging for disaster. I, I, I am genuinely and truly surprised that Myanmar has not yet experienced hyperinflation and a complete loss of faith in the currency. Like, how, how have they managed with this level of, of, of gross mismanagement and negligence? How have they managed to avoid the complete and total collapse of, of faith in the economy? Uh, well, I, I think the, the, the one thing that has always got the military through and the rulers of Myanmar through is that in the end, you, you, you've got subsistence, right? So, so you're not going to go below that. Um, and you've got multiple local economies. So people will produce goods in Myanmar to survive, right? So people will, will produce food and they'll exchange their production with each other. So, so whenever Myanmar's in one of its really down periods, which it is at the moment, um, you, you'll see things hit that floor and economic activity can still go on. Um, where the monetary aspects and faith in institutions, and again, money being the most basic institution of all, where that starts to matter is the that area of economic activity beyond subsistence, into the sort of transformational growth investment, some sort of projection into the future. Because when we think about it, money is really just a projection into the future. It's a bit of paper that you have now that says that you can consume in the future. So, you know, a monetary unit is a little bit of a time-travelling instrument. 
Um, and as, the, as that becomes doubtful, it starts to impact on those future projections of economic activity, of which, you know, the most important is investment, right? So you investment, you put money down now with a view to earning into the future. That's what gets damaged to the sort of instability that we're talking about. Um, but Myanmar, um, because of the economy and, and the, you know, the, the actually topography of the, of the place, the soils, the, the rivers, um, it's incredibly productive. I mean, it should be much more productive agriculturally, but, but that's always put a baseline uh, that the economy tends to bounce down to and then bounce along during terrible times uh, like, like we're experiencing now. Um, but yeah, but the damage is done at, at that higher level, uh, at that transformational level. And, and it's why I think, you know, the economy is, is in such poor state at the moment. Um, and, and of course, we, we can see that too, that the monetary disarray comes from the fact that people don't save in the JAT. Nobody saves in the JAT. If you're rich enough, you'll have gold, you'll have foreign currency, you'll store your wealth overseas. Uh, if you're poor enough, you'll store it in food or you won't store it at all. You'll be living day to day. Um, but I think, yeah, to me, the, 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 the JAT holds up as a unit of exchange, as a, as a means of exchange at a fairly basic level. But as soon as you start going beyond basic levels and particularly start thinking about where do people and how do people store mm. their wealth, Nobody uses the jack to store their wealth. But so, what you were talking about before, you were saying like, well, people create things. There's a baseline of economic activity. People make stuff and they can trade that. That's bartering. You're talking about bartering. That's something that we see when people have already completely lost faith in the economy. Like, I'm thinking of hyperinflation in Weimar Germany, hyperinflation in um, you know, post-World War II Hungary, I'm thinking about, or, or post-World War I, hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, like those cases where people say, well, I, I have a lot of like paper banknotes that I can wallpaper my house with, but more importantly, I have a basket of eggs and I can trade the basket of eggs to get some petrol from my neighbor. Like, is that what we're talking about? That That's the fallback in, in Myanmar's case? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's right. There's a couple of aspects to that to this as well. Um, some of the extreme examples of hyperinflation that have happened around the world have come in places where the state itself is collapsing. And, and the thing about hyperinflation, of course, is it builds on itself and it just quickly accelerates. So, so we're still short of that. So, so I'm, I'm not suggesting that there is hyperinflation in Myanmar. Um, but, uh, we're, but we see some of the other aspects that are equivalent to hyperinflation, which again is this, you know, lack of faith in fundamental institutions and currency avoidance, right? So I, I think we, we, what we can say about Myanmar is large parts of the economy are not denominated in the JAT. Uh, and again, at, at the low level that we're talking about here, at the, the basic level that, that most people uh, function as, there's just so much of Myanmar's economy which is non-monetary. Uh, and then at the higher levels, it, it happens in different ways. It, it's not the, the JAT that, that is the monetary unit uh, that... that that we're dealing with. Um, the other thing is just to say too that the profound inequality in Myanmar also tends to, or has tended to avoid hyperinflation because uh, those notes which are being printed to hand over fist, as we've been talking about, doesn't usually end up in the hands of most of the population. So it's quite, uh, it's quite narrow in its function. And so for that reason alone, you don't get that excessive demand of people with lots of notes against uh, many less goods, which, which delivers hyperinflation. So, um, so you've got an economy that, that's sort of divided up 
uh, into different spaces, spaces that only act and only enacted through foreign currencies. You've got spaces that are essentially barter, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and then you've got other spaces where the JAT is very much the, the means of exchange, but it's, uh, the, the volume issued is not sufficient across the overall economy to tip it into hyperinflation. Um, the other thing I think that hyperinflation is often masked a little bit in Myanmar just simply through uh, the non-purchase of goods. Okay, so, so again, even though there is plenty of jets around, they're not in the hands of enough people to deliver hyperinflation. So in other words, people just go without. So, so the, there's, there's still this demand supply problem but it's manifested not so much in hyperinflation, but by simply people not being able to buy anything. Because that, that was the, the other question that I wanted to ask on that, because when you when you just have the printing press, and I, I think the technical term for this is quantitative easing, but basically just printing money, that obviously reduces the value of the money that you have. But how much of that is mechanical, which is an unavoidable mathematical outcome of what you've done, and how much of that is psychological, which is people responding to what they think is going to happen. If people don't know about the double printings of currency, if they don't know about an extra couple of billion that were generated and then put into a warehouse, does that mask the inflationary effect of printing that money? Or is it going to come around eventually because that money is going to be spent on something somewhere somehow? Yeah, no, look, it's a great question. And and the two interact with each other. There is a mechanical aspect and there's a psychological aspect that I think history would show is much more important. So the, the mechanical aspect, again, because Myanmar's economy is segmented in so many ways, um, the mechanical aspect itself is not enough to lead to the hyperinflation. It's the lack of faith that really becomes the issue. Once people start to demand ever more currency units, for whatever product that they have on sale, whether it be a bag of rice or, or a coffee or, or whatever, um, that's that's the critical junction once you make that that journey into that area. Um, so, yeah, the mechanical aspect of it can be avoided for a long period of time. And, in fact, I mean, without getting too wonkish about this, um, economists are much less confident than they used to be about these mechanical aspects. Um, probably many people listening to this will remember the doctrine known as monetarism, which basically had a, a very strict relationship between money supply growth and inflation. And one of the things we've experienced down the decades since monetarism came up in the 70s was a breakdown in that relationship. So the mechanical one is not really the important one. The important one is, in fact, that, that faith in, in those foundational monetary... So, so as long as the military is able to keep a lid on how much money they're making and how much money they're spending presumably on buying a whole bunch of military hardware that they're not supposed to have, they're not actually damaging the economy as much as we would see in a Western country doing the same thing, but announcing how much they've generated. Yeah, and, and sometimes the damage is disguised as well, because the other way that the military finances itself, of course, is in an even more basic way than printing money, which is they just take stuff. Right? So they just extract physically resources. They send the troops out into the field without giving them food and so on and, and tell them to live off the land, which, of course, as we know, just means preying upon farmers, etc. So, um, so the military does a lot of that, direct extraction. 
So we don't have to worry about taxation policies and we don't even have to worry about printing notes if soldiers can simply, simply turn up in a village at the point of a gun and extract real resources. So that, that, that's also a critical thing. Um, the other thing, of course, we need to think of in all of this, which is absolutely important um, and, and which shapes so much of the conversation about Myanmar at the moment, is what the military desperately want is foreign currency. Uh, because foreign suppliers of arms, they, they don't want jets. No one, you know, the people in Myanmar don't necessarily want jets for all the reasons that we've mentioned, uh, but nobody overseas does. And so they need the foreign exchange to buy what they need to buy. So, so we, we must always remember that when, when I talk about no limits to monetary finance or to military financing within Myanmar, of course, that doesn't doesn't begin to tell the story internationally and hence their incredible sensitivity to things like international sanctions and the like. Absolutely. But it's, I, I, I think in terms of what the military is doing today, as in post coup, we, we might leave that for, for another day because I'm conscious of your, of your time. But with regards to what's going on before the, the obsession with foreign currency, particularly the U S dollar um, is, is quite rampant in Myanmar. It has been for a long time. But at the same time, we saw policies being passed, at least under the NLD regime, when, when, when I was living there, I remember policies being passed saying that people have to be paid in chat. They can't be paid in US dollars uh, anymore. Um, and that, I don't know whose policy, whether that was a military initiative or whether that was the government's initiative, but that there seems to be a desire to move away from foreign currencies. So what was happening there? That's right. So, so here you've got a real dilemma um, in the reform area because uh, in most countries around the world, economic activity is done in the local currency. Um, so I'm talking from Australia and if I went to a shop uh, just here in Sydney and I presented uh, a US dollar, probably a couple of shops would accept it, but most wouldn't. It would be too much hassle. They would have to go to a bank and exchange it into Australian dollars because it's Australian dollars that they need to pay their employees, to pay their taxes, to pay the rent, all that sort of stuff. So for most countries, having the uh, domestic currency unit is absolutely critical. It allows government to conduct policy, basically, and do all the things that, that it needs to do from you know financing hospitals, schools, roads, blah, 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 the whole thing. Uh, you need a, 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 a currency unit. Um, and, uh, and of course, we, we've then got that concept of legal tender. So most countries declare that their own currency unit is legal tender, which essentially just defines it as a unit that the government will accept for taxes. So, um, and so you get a basic value of the currency for that reason. People have to pay their taxes in something. Therefore, that something has an initial foundational value. And then that value item then can be used to conduct all the business of a country. So creating a local currency is, is you know, basic and fundamental, uh, but it's a little bit of a dilemma because it, it does have that aspect of, of what then do you ban? If you're in a country where there has been such a loss of faith in the local currency that people are not using it, then governments then are in a real dilemma and their ability to do things become really hampered. Because obviously the, the government of Myanmar can't print US dollars. Well, not 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 legally anyway. Um, so, uh, but it can print its own currency and it can establish its own, own currency unit. So, um, creating a domestic currency space is a basic economic function of government, no matter what the government is. 
Um, so, but it does mean that in a country like Myanmar, government comes in and it finds a large part of the economy is not uh, monetized in its domestic currency unit. It's got to try to think, well, how, how can we change this? How can we uh, function as a proper government? How can we raise money to, again, do the good stuff, education, health, blah, blah, blah. How can we do that if we don't have control over the monetary unit? So they've got to try to um, try to fix that. Now, the best way you can do it is by running really good economic policies, not printing too much money, having a good and fair and seen to be fair uh, taxation system, uh, having all the checks and balances of government, um, that allow you to build up confidence in the whole macroeconomic framework. That's the best way to do it. But, of course, all of that's going to take time and, and history and, and people's memory, and, and, you know, that's the basis of long-term institutional change. Uh, but along the way, it may be necessary at times to uh, say that some activities can't be dealt with in, in foreign exchange now if i so but you're absolutely right about the directives that came from the central bank about paying in local currency that that was certainly the case um with with my hat on i i tend to be someone who argues my, my default answer to every question is that greater freedom is better than less freedom so it wouldn't be a policy that that and wasn't a policy that, that I supported, but I understand where it's coming from, um, you know, from, again, that area of profound distrust in the local local currency. So it's, it's a part of a number of sort of policy items you could use to try to build up value in the local currency, but it, it wouldn't be the one that I would put. Fair enough. But nevertheless, this showed a, a pretty major shift in, in the economic uh, policy in the country. Now, how enforceable this was, uh, I mean, that's that's obviously a very different question. This is this is a largely cash economy country. Uh, I definitely continue to be paid in U.S. dollars. I know a lot of my colleagues and a lot of people in my circle continue to be paid in U.S. dollars because, at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who just foreigners. I mean, who re- will refuse to work if you're paying them in local currency because it's not considered to be stable and it's a hassle to exchange and so on. Um, so this is th- another element. How much of the policies? How much of the reforms? were readily enforceable in a country that was, especially pre-COVID, so very, very heavily dependent on cash transactions. Yeah, no, it's, again, another area where reform is just really, really tough. And you're absolutely right. My, my experience was the same, is that um, enforcement of these directives uh, very much lagged behind the overall policy directive. Um and it, yeah, and again, it's just one of those things that's just going to take a lot of time, if at all. And, and just to, in this area, uh, Myanmar is, is not, you know, such a special case. So if you go around all of Southeast Asia, uh, but, you know, everywhere around the world, basically, there are many, many countries where, of course, dollarization, uh, meaning in this case, the readily acceptance of the US dollar, particularly as a unit for saving, is really, really common. Um, and it's just a, it's yeah. It's, it's, I, I'm not sure if, it, if if it's ever going to be eradicable, to be honest. Except perhaps if there was a safe, stable Bitcoin mm-hmm. unit development, by which I don't mean current Bitcoin, perhaps, but something like it, you know. Um, so yeah, so it's very common, uh, but it does limit the government and its ability to finance itself. So uh, most governments around the world try to do something about it, and there are heavy-handed ways about it and lighter-handed ways about it, and. Yeah, as I say, I certainly go for the latter rather than the former. Fair enough. And so in sort of wrapping up the the part of the discussion that's pre-coup, 
Um, it, it seems that the, the ball was definitely rolling. Economic reforms were definitely happening and reforms, not just to the economy, but to the infrastructure, uh, the, the civil service. And so do you feel that the military felt the pinch? Do you feel that the military were genuinely concerned for the future of the country, which is to say the concern for their own futures within a country that's that's economically um, developing? Or do you think that the military felt that they could uh, just weather this storm? No, I, I, I think they, they really did feel under threat. Um, 2021 was going to be a critical year in so many areas, particularly in banking and some things related to that. Um, so finally, some of the reforms were starting to bear fruit and some real deadlines coming up. And in, in my view, they, they were definitely feeling the pinch. Um, which is not to say I don't want to get all economic determinist about this or, or even reform determinist because there were lots of other things, of course, going on at the Myanmar side that were you know, more important in, in many ways, including just individual factors relating to you know, the leadership of the military. Uh, but, but I do think that the reforms were part of the broader trigger uh, for the military uh, feeling more defensive, if you like, um, and, and getting a mindset that they they wanted this particular train to stop. Um, and, um, yeah, so even though I, I suspect that there were more important factors and there were more immediate triggers as well, but I do think this general direction uh, had the military worried. And so you, you talk about 2021 being a very big year. Obviously, none of that comes to pass because of the coup of uh, February. But what... What do you think would have happened? Like if if the if all of the deadlines that were planned for 2021 are met, uh, everyone is compliant with the requirements and, and the requests and the directives that have been set out, uh, and everything is sort of on track with regard to the reforms, end of 2021 with no coup, what do you think Myanmar would be looking at? Well, so I'm realistic enough to, to know that it's going to be better but not still transformed. So I mentioned, you know, 2021 is a, is a key year for the reforms, but having, you know, lived in the place right through that reform period, um, I'm realistic enough to know that, that some of these deadlines would have moved uh, and things not, you know, gone according to plan. But I think it would have been better, you know, that there would the incremental uh, ref, uh, aspect to the reforms would, would have continued. Um, uh, it, it would have been bolder. Uh, one of the things that, of course, we'll never never know now, but the second term of the NLD government was going to be bolder in the economic areas. A new set of uh, reform measures have been drawn up and people were extremely excited about them um, on top of those key deadlines that I mentioned earlier. So we expected an acceleration of reforms. In reality, we'd have, we'd have got maybe, I don't know, just top of my head, say half of what we wanted, maybe not even, 25%. Um, but it would have been a better place. The economy would have been that bit better than it had been before. I think the momentum would have been better. Um, I think the COVID outcome would have been dramatically better because amongst those new economic policies that were on their way was a package of issues to deal with COVID because, of course, that, that, that was running at the time. So this big new reboot of the reform program included a very comprehensive approach to COVID. And so we wouldn't have seen that disaster because, you know, the, the, the massive damage that that did to Myanmar's economy, even in addition to the coup, but of course connected with it, given the incredible 
venality and incompetence of the regime of dealing with that. Um, yeah, so the, the country just would have been, to, in my way of thinking, even even being, you know, really realistic about it, um, it just would have been immeasurably better than it turned out to be, but it wouldn't have been a utopia. Uh, it would still have been a struggle. There would still be complaints. Um, you know, a lot of the maladies would have still been there, but a lot of them would have been just that little bit better. I think that's a, a slightly more optimistic note than we usually have on this on this platform. So, so I thank you for that um, hypothetical indulgence. Uh, so I, I, I'm conscious of your time. So I think we can, uh, we can sort of conclude uh, around here and we can come back at a later date, hopefully, and we can discuss what was going on with economic reforms during COVID and what has been going on economically, both on the NUG side and the military side later uh, post coup. But uh, as is, as is convention and, and uh, I happen to know that you listen to the show. So uh, hopefully you're aware of this part. Uh, we like to end by giving the guests the opportunity to address the audience directly and, and share some thoughts for the, the audience to just consider and mull over as they go on about their day. So I'd like to invite you to uh, share some thoughts uh, with our audience now. Well, probably my overwhelming thought, given that I know so many uh, people from Myanmar listen to this, um, is just to express my profound gratitude uh, to the people of Myanmar. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I spent time in prison and all that, but that was of no fault to the Myanmar people uh, as opposed to the regime that rules over and exploits them. Um, and I experienced just the most extraordinary kindness, compassion and courage at the hands of people in a much worse position than this privileged foreigner talking now. Um, and so, yeah, my, my overall message to the listeners of this podcast, I suppose, is, is not to give up hope. The raw material of Myanmar is its people, and, and I think uh, that that raw material is of the, the highest quality. So um, that, that, that's my, probably my um, most important message that I'd like to get across. And, and uh, you know, the way that people have supported me, both you know, during the time in the prison, but since coming out and all that, the lovely messages I've received, um, I do think that it's there, you know, and we just, um, in a better political environment, uh, Myanmar could be a profoundly better place and, and a better place of the sort that it's, its people just so profoundly deserve. We want to take a moment to introduce you to our nonprofit Better Burma's online shop, which features handicrafts sourced from artisan communities scattered throughout Myanmar. Far from being mass-produced knockoffs, the pieces we offer are unique and handmade, reflecting the wide diversity of different peoples found throughout the country. When Myanmar experienced its transition period, moving from democracy in the late 2010s after decades of harsh military dictatorship, many Burmese craftspeople hoped their beautiful work could finally be appreciated beyond the country. When Myanmar experienced its transition period, moving towards democracy in the late 2010s after decades of harsh military dictatorship, many Burmese craftspeople hoped their beautiful work could finally be appreciated beyond the country's borders. But sadly, this was not to be so. Following the military coup, many skilled artisans suddenly found all possibility of continuing their livelihood closed off, 
and began struggling just to feed their families. With this in mind, we prioritize working with artisans from disadvantaged and vulnerable backgrounds because we know just how hard it can be to survive at the margins of society in Myanmar. This includes such people as those with disabilities, mothers who have contracted HIV-AIDS, civil servants on CDM, ethnic and religious minorities, and more. To view these wonderful pieces, please visit alokacrafts.com. That's aloka, A-L-O-K-A, crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Otherwise, please consider a donation through our usual channels. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, da, yaranan, yada, yaranan, boda, ba, yaranan, no.